If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It is podcast time. I hope all is well in your life. You know the drill. This is the, well, I mean, it used to be easier to make the economy more plausible, (laughs) more logical. But God knows in the last few weeks, the deck of cards has been thrown in the air. It's impossible now to give a fairly confident forecast of what is going to happen in the global economy. We have stagflation, we have rising commodity prices, we have trade wars, we have actual wars, we have the potential of the most monumental trade and financial war between the United States, i.e. us and the Chinese. It looks as if the world is moving into either you're with us or against us. Germany is rearming for the first time since the 1930s, which is always something we should sit up and listen to and maybe even worry about. But something Putin has done is he's actually woken the Germans up and maybe Germany becomes the power that it was before the Second World War, which was Europe's economic, political, social and philosophical powerhouse. So all this stuff is going on, John. And you know what? Remember we thought we had plaster, what, plaster fasciitis? (laughs) Plantar fasciitis. All this thing's going on in the world, but in my life, in my life, the plantar fasciitis, I went up to a place called the Foot, oh, what's it called? Up in, up in Stillorgan. Foot Focus, I think it's called. Right. And they said, no, you have an Achilles tendonitis injury. From which, football. From football. That makes more sense. Yes. So I am now walking around with the creepy priest shoes. <laughs> See, I was about to bring you down a golf ball or a tennis ball where I was going to get you to roll your foot because that's what you're supposed to do. Well, But you're not going to be doing that now. No, I'm not going to be doing that now, but it shows that our many years, you and I, of being podiatricians came to fore. I, I love the fact we were so confident in our diagnosis. <laughs> yes. So, well, I think you have... Uh, well, well you... that's what Google does to everybody. <laughs> How are you, Ed? Good to see you. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's rocking your world? Well, nothing much, really, apart from this war is kind of rocking my world and everyone else's world. Yeah. But do you know what I did find a little bit disturbing during the week was while Ukraine was being bombed, Putin had a big rally. But it was a rally exactly... No, I saw it in Moscow. Yeah, in Moscow. But it's smacked of 
almost a Trump style rally and a, a kind of a rally that Bolsonaro does. So it's like all these, you know, authoritarian states all are playing the same kind of style and same playbook. They are. But you know what I find really interesting? So I, w- I wonder what the Russian for lock her up is or <laughs> yeah. take back control <laughs> or drain the swamp. You know, it's, it's, it's the three where's, words. Where's Hunter's laptop? All that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, what I find much more interesting now is the fact that all those mini Putins, what I find extraordinary is the way in which this war has now put it up to the hard left and the extreme right. Yeah. So the hard left are always really anti-American, right? Which is why you never, ever, ever see huge protests on the streets about a Russian-inspired invasion manufactured by the left. Mm. But an American-inspired invasion, you have 100,000 people on the street. Yeah. So the left has always been anti-American. Now it's kind of put it up to them saying, well, okay, does that mean you're with Putin? Or where are you? And the other thing is the ethnocentric right which is more the Bolsonaros and the Le Pens of this world. And in Italy, our friend, what's his name? Salvini. Yeah. Those guys are all very quiet now. So what has happened is I think the center has reemerged as the ballast, right? And the center was one that the Russians and the Chinese said, oh, those centrists, right? They're too... Woke. They're too woke. They're too liberal. They've no backbone. They can't stand up. They can't unify. They're too rich. They're too decadent. They are. There was a great book called by Max Nordau, John, published in 1900 called Degeneration. And it was about, it was an ethno-nationalist book, right? It was a huge bestseller. It was all about the degeneration of the liberal center, right? That we were in some way too effete, too feminine, too whatever, to actually fight. They were banging on about that way back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's another extraordinary book. Uh, actually, now that we're on, on unusual books from the past, like Oswald Spengler, all these come from <laughs> yeah. Central Europe. This is why I was saying Germany used to be the philosophical fountain yeah. of all European ideas. And uh, so Degeneration is by Max Norda, right? And then about 15 years later, there's a book by Oswald Spengler, right? And it's about the end of the West, right? These are huge, huge bestsellers all over Germany. Right? And they're all based on this idea of you are degenerate. Yeah. You liberals are degenerate. Yeah. Now what you've seen is liberals are saying, no, in actual fact, we will stand up and we will fight and we will unify and we will, if push comes to shove, we will imperil our own economic well-being, which is what you always said was the dominant driving force of us liberals. We'll imperil that for something like Ukraine. So we will put sanctions on yeah. Russia. We will take higher commodity prices. We will take higher food prices. But you know what? We will also take 3 million Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. We yeah. will not yeah. put up the borders. We will actually, we will play a different tune to you guys. And the way I, which I see it is the world is splitting between these two big ideas. And that, of course, puts America and China on a collision course. Yeah. And that, I think, is something really fascinating to look at because the way this whole thing plays out is that ultimately the guardians of one type of system, the autocracy, are China and Russia. And they're on one side. And the guardians of liberal democracy are the United States and the European Union. Yeah. 
and we're on the other side. And everyone's got to have to make a choice. And that's what it's coming down to. And that is extraordinary. I'll give you one last book reference, John, which is the assumption that because of supply chains, because of travel, because of connections, because of economics, great powers don't go to war, right? That's the mm. idea that we always pull back yeah. at the end because it makes no sense for everybody. Yeah. Well, that was the whole sense. thing about globalization. We're so intertwined and interlinked that uh, yeah, it would be madness to yeah, go to madness. war. And again, I, I told you about Nordau and I told you about Spengler. Mm. But uh, another book that was written again in 1909 and then republished in 1912 was a book called The Great Illusion. It was the biggest selling book of 1913. Now think about 1913, wow. the biggest selling book of 1913 by an English guy called Agnel, right? Or Angel, I don't know how you pronounce it, right? Okay. And it was called The Great Illusion. And The Great Illusion was the illusion that war could happen. So that was The Great Illusion. Right. And he was saying, don't you worry about all these drumbeats of war and all these ethno-racist people and fascist people and military people, because basically at the end of the day, rationality right. will, will out. He was an economist, right? No, he wasn't. He was a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> he was also a magician. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked in a circus. Did no way. Yeah, I swear to God, a very fascinating guy. He was so he's a politician then. He was a, exactly. <laughs> he was a clown. But interestingly, interestingly, the central assumption was, like now, that look, China and America have too much at stake to invoke a war against you, a trade or finance war. Yeah. That was the, the assumption. And you can see in 1914 how the world went from being, there's another great book, okay, around the books called right. 1913. So it's a library you're going no, through it's here. No, I, I really recommend it. It's a book called 1913. It's written by a German guy called Illes, I-L-L-E-S. And it's about that year. It's brilliant because it basically takes the year before the First World War and who was happening. And an extraordinary thing was happening. Think of it, Stalin, Tito, and Hitler lived on the same street in Vienna. Yes, yeah. In Vienna, right? And you have Freud, and you have Picasso, you have Joyce. It's, were they hanging out, though? That, they, they, they lived on the same street. Isn't yeah, that yeah. mad? At that one time. Sorry, it wasn't Stalin. Sorry, it was Trotsky. Trotsky, right. Tito and Hitler. I wonder, would they have a little chat as they're putting the bins out of a Tuesday yeah, evening? Yeah, yeah. It's a green bin. Is it a green bin night at all, do you think? Well, Leon, I'm not too sure. We'll have to ask Tito, Josef Broz Tito. Yeah. Fasc fascinating book. Anyway, enough of books. Let's go and talk about the global economy and let's talk about the showdown between China and America. The latest news on the showdown of China and America with George Magnus. George Magnus was the chief economist of UBS when I was working there with him years ago. He has written, I think, five or six books on China. He's a really plugged into what's going on in China, and he's got a great big worldview. Great. I think he's suffering from the COVID, so we got him out of the scratcher. Oh, right. Only we can get a man out of scratcher to do the Dave McQueen's podcast. Let's go to London and let's talk to George. How are you, George? I'm not too bad, David. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. George, I want to go straight to the meeting, the most recent meeting on Ukraine and Russia between Biden and Xi, okay? And I'm going to give you the Chinese account as quoted, right? It says, Xi said this to Biden. Sweeping and indiscriminate sanctions will only make the people suffer. If further escalated, they could trigger serious crises in the global economy and trade and finance and energy, food, industrial supply chains, crippling an already languishing world economy and causing irrevocable losses. It doesn't seem to me that China and America are close together. 
are bridge the gap that they have over Ukraine? No, it doesn't seem like that at all. And um, I certainly, if you look at the, the, the Chinese read, as you've just outlined, and what the Americans are saying in slightly uh, quieter terms, I think, I mean, they had a two-hour conversation, apparently. So, uh, I mean, they can't have been just kind of staring at each other for all that time. So I imagine they exchanged some pretty important and kind of trenchant views. They obviously have to agree to differ about an awful lot of things. Um, I mean, the only hope really is that maybe in the back channels and, you know, behind the kind of headlines that both sides want to broadcast to their own people and their own sides, that actually, you know, maybe there's a little bit of give that we can't really see yet. And I, I think it's very, it's purely speculative. But yeah, as things stand, it looks like they're quite far apart. And and what you read out basically is Xi Jinping's riposte to the notion that Biden had already mentioned, which is that if China were to help Russia militarily or in any major way, that uh, secondary sanctions might come into play, right? So the primary sanctions basically are anybody that does business with a Russian entity. The secondary sanctions, which haven't been used yet, are really about uh, third parties that may facilitate transactions or assistance to Russia, and which America has reserved the right to take action against if necessary. That obviously did not go down well, does not go down in Beijing. Well, you know, George, very rarely, rarely do I see something I think wow, this meeting is of profound consequence, really profound consequence. Because if China continues to prevaricate the ambiguous or actually support the Russians, then what we have is a sort of a proxy war in Ukraine where the five great powers, so to speak, of the UN Security Council are against each other mm. in Ukraine. What does that mean for the global economy? Explain this. I want you to talk about China, but I also want you to talk about in your capacity as a global economist, the whole how the whole thing hangs together. Okay. Well, uh, where to begin? I mean, I know a small a small question. Yeah, there's so much to so much to say, but a couple of things. I mean, maybe we could just kind of highlight. I mean, one is for China. I mean, China is in a bad place, right? I mean. What China craves normally, or what the Chinese Communist Party craves above all else most of the time, is stability. 2022, at the end of which is the 20th Party Congress, at which Xi Jinping is expecting to be crowned for an unprecedented third, perhaps, you know, multiple terms of office, unprecedented in the sense that it's not happened since Mao. And given the headwinds in the economy, even before COVID resurged and before the Ukraine war, the word from the policymakers in, in China for this year, which we only just heard repeated at the National People's Congress a few days ago, is stability, stability, stability. They don't want anything to rock the boat. So this is very, very unwelcome for them. But, you know, Xi Jinping has nailed his political colours to a mast for the time being. And, you know, having the risk of Putin failing or being humiliated is something which is unconscionable for Xi Jinping. So I'm afraid for the time being, those politics are trumping everything. And maybe it's a question of when Putin becomes even too toxic for Xi Jinping, which is quite possible. The other point about the global economy, you know, Russia is now a pariah. 
right? And whatever globalization amounts to in 2022, Russia and its allies are not part of it anymore, or not, you know, are not going to be part of it uh, for the time being. So I, I think it's unquestionably a big shock to the way the world system works. So, you know, we think about cheap food. Well, we don't think about cheap food and energy anymore, but we used to think about cheap food and energy, about, you know, free flow of labor and so on and so forth. I mean, all of these things, supply chain integrity, all of this stuff is up in the air or is gradually being eroded. Um, So it's not good. You know, cost structures will go up. Inflation, I think, you know, I mean, there's a sort of a cyclical dynamic to inflation, which may be unwound because high energy prices, high gas prices are deflationary in their own way. But actually, cost structures will probably remain higher for a very, very long period of time. And companies are going to have to start fretting and uh, kind of recalibrating what they source, where they source, how they source, and how much they're going to pay for it. And so, yeah, there's no two ways about it. There's, there's, I mean, if you're a commodity producer, it's kind of bonanza time. But for most of us, it's not good news, of course. And George, can I come back to you with the this, the Chinese strategy? You know, everyone always talks about China does the long-term game, the rest of us do the short-term game. China has the maybe the, the, the ability to appear quite subtle. Putin's very, very blunt. You know, extraordinary difference in tactics between these two. But what is in it for China to tie themselves to Russia? Explain that to me. Well, you know, there's there's a long sort of standing uh, suspicion uh, between the two countries, which has gradually been eroded, I think. Not eroded. It's been eroding since the Crimea invasion, really. And I think both uh, Russia and China are united by perhaps only by, I mean, obviously, there's a small economic dependency, which is the provision of oil and gas from Russia to China and Chinese products and technology, you know, going the other way. But actually, that's pretty small, right? I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's really small stuff. Yeah, I mean, bilateral trade last year was about 150 billion, 160 billion dollars. I mean, it's double what it was when Crimea was invaded. Uh, But even so, that's like peanuts when you think about China's trade with Europe and with the United States. Which is what? Do you have any sort of ballpark for the yeah, size? Yeah, it's five, $550 billion with Europe, for example. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, I'm not sure if I'm – yeah, it must be bilateral trade, actually. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a so, multiple. So it's multiples of, of the Russian yeah, yeah. exposure. Yeah. So the, the economic bind between Russia and China, I mean, it has been growing, but it's not really the be-all and end-all. The be-all and end-all, really, is uh, security arrangements and uh, cooperation. They have you know, an organization called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes China, Russia, all the stans, the Central Asian Republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, that's always been thought of as being a sort of a poor man's NATO. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of the forum in which they try to want, they want to exclude America and American influence from Central Asia. But obviously, it's this anti-American, anti-NATO agenda, which unites Xi Jinping and Putin. And both of them have taken the view, rightly or wrongly, that the time is right to go on the offensive because we are in permanent decline. I would think that the response that they're watching in Europe, in the Germany in particular, and 
and between the NATO allies would be rather alarming, I would say. I mean, it's probably not what they expected. So that geopolitical bind is really what has kind of brought them together. And I think it, it may, I mean, it's slightly alarming or quite alarming to think about it, but I mean, it may be that the prospect of exploiting that tension as they see it, or as China sees it, actually is something they don't find unwelcome at all. So, as I said before, it might be a question of just trying to, you know, see if there is a point at which Putin just becomes overly toxic, even for Beijing, where they have to, maybe they won't drop him or dump him, but find a way to get off that barbed wire fence, which they're sitting on at the moment, actually. Well, well, they are. And also the thing is, George, you know, again, it's, it's, it's amazing the way things pan out. Had we had a chat, and actually, in fact, we did have a chat around December, and we were talking about looking forward, and uh, and there was a general sense, you know, that the stability and the, the narrative of China's ascending, America's declining, the West is too comfortable, too fat, too nonplussed to act together. We're kind of soft and, and all this, right? So that's all changed. But what really worries me is the way in which the global economic system now is so fragile and is so hostage to events on the ground in Ukraine and reaction to Ukraine, that the global economic system that you and I have known for the last 30 years, this globalization, could in a matter of weeks be a thing of the past. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty high risk that that that's kind of what we're in the early stages of looking at. It, and it's kind of spooky because, you know, for decades, as the high tide of globalization was rolling on in the 1990s and the 2000s, I remember a lot of, you know, discussions that people used to have about, well, how did it all fall apart in 1914? Well, now we can see how it all fell apart. Because politics eventually just interferes with what we think is the kind of common sense of economic engagement and interdependency. And I think it is is quite dangerous. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is Russia basically wants our cash for energy. China wants something completely different. It wants markets, not just cash. Without markets in Europe and the United States, I mean, China is torpedoed, right? I mean, it's not good for anybody. I mean, it would be cataclysmic for the global economy if we were to wage economic or financial warfare against China. I don't think there would be any winners at all. But For a country that believes its own rhetoric and propaganda about inevitable rise and that craves the world system, it's not a a kind of a revolutionary power. It wants the world system as it sees it, but it wants to reshape it so that it suits the governance system changes to suit China's interests better. But China would be... I mean, pretty badly affected, I think. I mean, catastrophically so. If we were to, I mean, if we froze $3 trillion of Chinese foreign exchange reserves, I mean, they would regard that as a casus belli, as an act of war. I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would. And it would be. We do it only because that's specifically because that's what we intended. 
But I mean, you know, it would be catastrophic. I mean, that that really would be the end of globalization. And we, as it is, I would say we are looking at globalization that is fraying really, really badly. And that what's happening is we're going, we're developing gradually a sort of a bifurcated system where, you know, we do trade kind of thing, but in technology, in advanced manufacturing, in a whole range of activities that used to be called economics, but we now re-pigeon them as national security. Yeah, strategic <laughs> industries or whatever we call them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we develop a kind of a, a risk of de- developing, you know, a bifurcated global system, separate standards, separate regulations, separate operating rules. Companies have then or are being drawn into this kind of crosshair in which they have to choose whose rules they're going to follow and whose rules they're going to flout. You look at the flood of companies that have just abandoned China. They're not going back in uh, Russia, sorry, Freudian slip. Um, They've just abandoned Russia. I mean, they're not going back in a hurry. I mean, companies will be very reluctant to kind of draw a line under what they've regarded as their strategic interests for the decades to come by abandoning China. But some of them may be forced into this position. And, you know, at the very least, I mean, my understanding for what it's worth is that a lot of companies are at least reconsidering their supply chain dependencies on sole source Chinese suppliers Simply because strategically, it's too risky. It's it's far too risky. It's far too risky. George, just before you go, so we're looking at a variety of risks that used to be regarded as extreme, marginal, almost fantastical, right? Now we're looking at these as moving not towards a central position, but moving towards plausibility. And yet at the same time, so we have inflation rising, okay? We have threat, we have sanctions against Russia, a threat of sanctions against China and and a trade and financial war against China. We have COVID coming back in Asia in in a huge way. I'm looking at financial markets. You and I used to sit in these trading desks and trading floors many years ago. I'm looking at financial markets. No bad news can stop financial markets rising. What is going on? (laughs) It is a bit bizarre. And I think, you know, it's probably because, I mean, it's sort of an age-old reflection that I think people have all the time, which is financial markets have become pretty sophisticated at discounting uncertainty, right? This may happen, this may happen, you establish probabilities, you weight them, you feed them into models and so on and so forth. What financial markets are hopeless at doing, they cannot discount unpredictability. And we just don't know. If you thought, for example, that the Russians were going to do something terrible, you know, tactical nuclear weapon, chemical weapons or something, I mean, if you thought they were going to do that tomorrow, you could take a position, right? And you kind of sell everything. If you think it might happen six months down the road, I mean, you you just, markets are just hopeless at being able to do these things. So it's this this inability to deal with unpredictability. So yeah. you can discount lots of things and create scenarios. But when you've got unpredictability, you just kind of march on. To, it's really interesting, just before we go, Neil Ferguson has written a lot about financial markets uh, in the couple of days ahead of the First World War. 
And he makes the point, and it's very, very well made, that even when the German and Austrian troops were mobilizing in order to actually go to war, the stock markets continued to trade, slight discount. Then on the 3rd of August, 1914, they closed and they didn't open again until 1919. Mm. Well, that that tells its own story. But as a sort of a a parallel anecdote, one research house recently put out a report that said, if you think Armageddon's coming, you know, you need to be maximum long equities. What? The, and the reason, the re- I thought it was like somebody been, you know, taking drugs or something, but I thought about it afterwards, actually, and I can kind of see the logic behind this perverted or curious logic, which is for the very reason that markets are seemingly oblivious to all the terrible things that we see going on around us, which is the sort of unwillingness or inability to basically discount really, really bad outcomes, uh, which can't be predicted. I mean, the thinking probably is, you know, you might as well be long to the gingas, right? Because if Armageddon does happen, nobody's going to be able to collect from you. <laughs> <laughs> On that, I don't know, salutary, upbeat, optimistic note, George, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Lovely to see you. Thanks for having me, David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was fascinating stuff, as always. Yeah, no, he's, 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 a good egg. he's a good egg, George Magnus. Come here, there's something you said in that, which I just want to ask you about. You said that, going back to the First World War, that in 1914, the markets shut and they didn't reopen again till 1919. What happened in the global economy? I know the war was going on, but what happened in the global economy without the markets? And so can you have an economy, a modern economy, without financial financial markets? Yes, you can. This is the great, one of the great, as the French would say, canards, one of the great canards of financial markets is that they're essential. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. That, that in actual fact, 
without financial markets, the economy would seize up. There's no evidence of that at all. Uh, what there is evidence of is that without financial markets, uh, capital will not flow to certain areas, right? Mm. But in the 1914, so basically two enormous events happened during the First World War financially. The first one was mass default of every everything. Mm. So the period between 1870 and 1914 was the first real period of globalization, right? Where you have extraordinary capital transfers, largely from Europe to the rest of the world. Okay, yeah. So financing things, like I told you in the last one, the Baghdad to Berlin Railroad. Right. Like, yeah. Think of it that. I mean, yeah. right? Financing all the railroads in Russia, financing all the huge railroads in Canada, financing all the huge railroads in Latin America. The markets oh. enabled that. Yeah. So basically the savings from Europeans went into these projects. Yeah. So emerging markets was the big thing in 1914 or before 1914. So there was huge integration of finance under the global system called the gold standard, right? And the gold standard was basically the anchor for the whole thing, yeah. right? Then what happens is all countries come off the gold standard because the thing about the gold standard is if you need a certain fixed amount of gold in order to legitimize printing money and you need to print money to make your industry work yeah. and you need your industry to work because you've got to switch from industrial production to military production. All these countries came off the gold standard. Everyone did, right? Mm. And everyone started to print money in order to finance the First World War effort. So Germany, Austria, Hungary, etc. the Russians, the Brits, everybody, right? That's the first thing. So what happened was they printed lots and lots of money in order to get military spending mm. up, okay? Yeah. But what they did also at the same time was they imposed rationing and price controls on everything, right? Yeah. So basically what you had, you had lots and lots of money sloshing around the economy, lots and lots of paper money. But because of price controls, the prices of all commodities couldn't go up. So you had like a communist system. Okay? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, yeah. So that, that's essentially it. Is that's essentially what happened. So, you know, during, prices. during like so the 1916 rising here and all those periods, were periods where there was a huge overhang of paper money, enormous overhang of paper money, and a kind of command and control economy of rationing and of fixed prices and mm. price controls. So then after the war, economies said, okay, we're going to go try and go back to normal. And they took away lots and lots of price controls. This is particularly most evident in Austria, Hungary, and the, the most egregious example of Germany. And what happens is all that money that was sloshing around mm. has to find a home somewhere else. And it finds a home in the commodities and the staples where the price controls were lifted. Yeah. And you see massive, massive hyperinflation so in 1919, 1920, 1921 in Germany, in Austria, in Hungary. And then it goes off the scales 22 and 23. All right. So it's, that's actually not dissimilar from coming out of COVID. The pandemic. It's not quite hyperinflation, but inflation it's hit. Inflation, once, so yeah, it's inflation. So yeah, the spigots is the phrase that you use. Yeah, you, you open the spigots, and I mean, again, you know, the funniest thing is about COVID is that two months ago we were always talking about the pandemic, pandemic economy, the post-pandemic economy. You know, now that's really assumed that it's going to be quite inflationary, and the reason it's assumed it's quite inflationary is because once you isolate and suppress prices and markets in economics. And then you open them up again, right? Money has to go somewhere. Yeah. Prices have to go somewhere. And usually that 
those price increases are upwards. Okay, so let me ask you another question, actually. You know you're saying that war brings instability and markets and stuff don't like instability. Yeah. And as George is saying, that's China's yeah. main focus is to maintain that stability. But war in itself can be good for an economy. Like, for instance, Germany now investing 100 billion euro in, in military. U- in military. And during the First and Second World War, America turned into a war economy where it was all about manufacturing. And also, you know, when supply chains break down as well, that countries, nations have to focus on being self-sufficient. Yeah. So it, it can be good for an economy, yeah? No, I think war is, I would say, that this, so I'd say with my economist hat on, war is always bad for an economy because it destroys wealth, it destroys assets, right? Mm. That's the first thing. What you're talking about is usually two things. One is the United States was unique in the sense that with the exception of Pearl Harbor, there were no destruction of American assets in the Second World War. Mm. It was yeah. only all it was all upside on the production side for them. Yeah. Think about Russia, think about Germany. I mean, Germany was flattened, it was completely destroyed. Yeah. What war does is it destroys the very gel, the kind of the connective tissue of economics, which is trade. Without trade, everything, everything suffers, right? Mm. So this goes back to David Ricardo. David Ricardo was amazingly the first economist who talked about comparative advantage, all those sort of things. But more interesting right. for an Irish audience was an MP for Leash. Was he? Yes. He was a, he was a the member. Ricardo's from Leash. He was a member. He was, <laughs> David Ricardo was a English, I think originally Sephardic Jewish migrant in England from Portugal. Right? What, so what the, year are we talking? We're talking about the mid 18th century. Right. right? Okay. He was also, <laughs> no, actually the, the, the early 19th century. Sorry, the early 19th century. Okay. Right. He was also the original thinker about trade theory in economics, right? So he's the one who came up with comparative advantage. It's always better to trade. You know, if one country produces guns, one pro- country produces butter, you'll find that it's it's better for them to trade the country that's good at producing yes, guns, yeah. right? all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But what people don't know was that he was an Irish politician, <laughs> right? Nobody knows it. From Leash, right? From Port Arlington, of all wow. places. Wow. That's where he was elected, right? These are bizarre. And did, and did he write his, all these theories while he was based in Port Arlington? Yeah, this is this is the extraordinary thing, and people don't know it. Like, and David Ricardo was one of the greats of, mm. uh, of economics. Like he was English, but he was kind of parachuted in to a safe seat. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So Port Leash, Port Arlington, all around that area. Anyway, but the basic idea is that trade benefits everybody, right? So when you teach trade, as I do in, in university, right? Yeah. There's three things you start with. One is trade benefits everybody. Two is it benefits some people more than it benefits others. Mm-hmm. And three is the people who lose out on trade should always be compensated by the state, right? So that I've actually get them to buy in. So this right. is why, and this is where globalization and the United States, when they decided to trade with China, so trade benefited everybody. Yeah. It benefited some people more than others. So if you were making cars in Detroit, it didn't benefit you, right? Yeah. Because your manufacturing base went elsewhere. But if you were buying cars in New York, it benefited you because you were getting lower manufacturing price. Sure. So that's the second thing. Sure, sure, sure. And the third thing is the people who are displaced by trade should be compensated. And that's what the Americans didn't do. And once you don't do that, what you get is you get this underlying resentment towards globalization okay. and trade and openness, and those people voting for Trump. So it actually, you know, economics does have yeah. some sort of 
hermetically sealed logic in it, but always a system that destroys trade will destroy wealth because the reason that trade creates wealth is it creates opportunities, not just opportunities, it creates investment, it creates innovation, all these sort of things. Mm. So I would say that war is extremely harmful to economics. But what we always talk about, John, is the recovery from war. So, for example, the Wirtschaftfonder was the German economy after the Second World War under Konrad Adenauer. People would say, how can they ever, ever get back to where they were? The Germans were back to where they were by the mid-1970s. The Japanese were the second, having been yes, destroyed, yeah, yeah, second yeah. largest economy in the world by 1967. Italy had its, its Dolce Vita from 1950s through the 1960s, 1970s. France as well. So all these countries recovered dramatically. Why? Because investment has accelerated yeah. profoundly. But also because the Americans, with the Marshall Aid Plan, said to the rest of the world, or, or their allies at least, look, don't worry, we'll back you. In fact, one of the extraordinary things about the Americans after the Second World War is they treated their enemies better than their friends, which is really quite phenomenal. So the Americans treated Japan and Germany better yeah. than they treated Britain and France, right? So they, met the, they made the Brits pay back all the money that they lent yeah. them. They allowed the Germans to fault on everything. Everything. But, but that was, they, they allowed that the was Japanese long-term default. strategic thing. It was long-term strategic yeah. thing. But I mean, if you, were, if you were an ally of America, you think, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, were yeah. on your fucking side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, but just to conclude from what George was saying, I think it's very important. I think we could be on the cusp of some absolutely profound changes to the global economy as we know it and as we have come to understand it. And there could be some opportunities for Ireland, which we will discuss in the next podcast from this. Good. But ultimately, ultimately, I think we are at one of those tipping point moments. And the fascinating thing about the world is you only know in hindsight that a week was crucial. Remember we were talking about Lenin? Lenin said, yeah, yeah. there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades, decades happen. And this, I think, is one of those weeks. Just a quick shout out to all our Patreons. Thank you so much for supporting us over the last year. I hope you're enjoying the course. I hope you're enjoying the questions. I hope you're enjoying the uh, chats on Patreon. And if you do fancy supporting us, all you're going to do is go to patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go Facial Set provides spa-level results at home. 
Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.